the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, Laudato Jesus Christus in Seguila. This is Timothy Flanders at the Meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King, and I'm happy to be joined once again by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones, thanks for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Tim. Good to be here. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about uh, Dr. Jones's latest tome, which is The Dangers of Beauty. This uh, fantastic text, which uh, we had to wait a little bit for the printing, but it was worth it because of all the color photos in this uh, magnificent uh, another tome from Dr. Jones. Uh, before we get into that, uh, make sure you subscribe to Culture Wars. Here's uh, the latest edition is on the Logos Incarnate in Iran. Um, Dr. Jones, what, what's, what's new with you? What, what, uh, are you working on a new book? What's your latest project? Yeah, I am actually, uh, just, just recently, uh, I was down, down in Kentucky where, uh, the magazine gets printed. I, these are uh, third order Dominicans. I've known them for over 40 years now. They've been working with me uh, during that period of time. And as I was getting into the car to come back, uh, home, uh, Dennis Musk came up to me and handed me a card, uh, said his daughter is, uh, has brain cancer, but they're praying to Rose Hawthorne. Uh, and suddenly, uh, she, suddenly all these threads in my life kind of came together at this point. Uh, first of all, Rose Hawthorne is the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is the author of The Scarlet Letter, probably the most famous American novelist. Uh, but more importantly, he's the author of uh, The Marble Fawn, uh, which is about uh, the fact that he took his family to Rome. Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, was a child of New England, uh, a provincial. Henry James, that's what Henry James called him. He was provincial. He spent his 50 years of his beginning of his life in New England villages. He wrote the biography, the campaign biography of Franklin Pierce, who was his classmate at Bowdoin College in, in uh, Maine. Pierce got elected and uh, Hawthorne was rewarded by getting the consulship in Liverpool, where he made enough money to go to Rome, where he arrived uh, around uh, 18, uh, the late 1850s with his entire family, including Rose, who was nine years old at the time. And uh, what they did for the next three years is travel around Rome. Now, this has direct relevance. I've already told you about the connection with Hawthorne. It also has direct connection. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Nathaniel Hawthorne 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago. 
But 50 years ago, he was on my mind because I'm trying to figure out the mind of Nathaniel Hawthorne. And the book that came out of that, which was based on my doctoral dissertation, is called The Angel and the Machine, probably the first book-length manuscript. It is the first book-length manuscript I ever wrote. Uh, and it talks about Hawthorne's rational psychology, a man caught uh, between two bad ideas, namely materialism on the one hand, the machine, and angelism or German idealism on the other. And the composite or the human being was made, was basically an angel imprisoned in a machine instead of uh, the soul uh, as the form of the body, which Thomas Aquinas would say. So that's got, that was another thread that brought me together. But the, the other thing that brought me together at, at that time, let me go back to that. The big problem in Hawthorne criticism at that time, biography, was why was Hawthorne melancholy at the end of his life? He had four, un, he died with four un, unfinished manuscripts on, a, on the table when he was buried and conquered with the entire uh, flower of the New England Renaissance at his funeral. The copy of uh, Septimus Felton was lying on his coffin, something that um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow noted because he was there in the crowd, wrote a poem about it. Uh, so that's the one angle. The other angle is, what did, what did Hawthorne see when he went to Rome? He saw beauty. This is, this is a man who, what he, if, if you were going to church in New England at this time, which is, say, the, eight, the first half of the 19th century, you went to a, probably a white clapboard church with plain glass windows, uh, and uh, you uh, listened to a, 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 a sermon. If you were lucky, because at this time is the rise, we have the rise of Unitarianism, where the uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, the neighbor of Hawthorne, uh, it's hard to say a friend because they were completely incompatible, but a neighbor, and uh, uh, Rose Hawthorne remembers his visits of Mr. Emerson patting her on the head and giving her some candy. Uh, the rise of Unitarianism, his speech at the Harvard Divinity School was 1825. Uh, this is the evaporation of the, pretty much the last remnant of Christianity in, in uh, the most significant intellectual capital of uh, America at this time. I'm talking about the Trinity, the evaporation of the Trinity and the consequences that flowed from that. So Hawthorne uh, leaves there. He's confronted with, he's, so God, who controls all of our lives, not only took Nathaniel Hawthorne to Rome, he took Nathaniel Hawthorne to St. Peter's Basilica. And not only did he take him to St. Peter's Basilica, he took Hawthorne to the confessional in St. Peter's Basilica. Why is that significant? Because his most famous novel, The Scarlet Letter, is about the inability to go to confession, sacramental confession. This plagued Hawthorne for his entire adult life. What I learned in doing the research for this is that uh, the original plan for the Scarlet Letter was to have Dimsdale confess to a Catholic priest. <laughs> Where are you going to find a Catholic priest in Salem in yeah. the 17th I know of one Catholic priest who showed up there, and his name was Isaac Jogues, minus fingers, because the Iroquois had just chewed them off. Uh, and the, the uh, Puritan uh, fathers, to their credit, treated him with respect and put him on the ship and sent him to France. Uh, unlike Quakers, they hanged the Quakers, but they treated uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> Isaac Jones with respect. 
So what, what, we're what are we talking about here? It's the central statement of the book you just held up, which is that beauty is a transcendental, which means it's one of those ultimates that, always, that finds its uh, foundation in God. And so if you're brought into the presence of beauty, you're brought into the presence of the, the true and the good, which means you're brought into the presence of God. And that's precisely what happened to Nathaniel Hawthorne at this point. He was brought, the transcendental beauty of Rome and centuries of artwork that only could have taken place in a culture which had internalized the gospel over a thousand years, more than a thousand years, uh, had its effect on Nathaniel Hawthorne, and the beauty was just overwhelming. Now, we, we know this because he talked about it all the time. He talks about it in The Marble Fawn. He talks about it in the notebooks, and lots of what happens in the notebooks simply gets transposed into the marble fawn. And everything he saw, he saw in the presence of his daughter Rose. So conversely, everything that Rose saw, Nathaniel Hawthorne saw, including uh, literally bumping into Pius IX as they're walking through the uh, Vatican Gardens. Wow, <laughs> this this is... This is exciting. I was actually going to um, ask you about your PhD because I, I've never heard you talk about it. Um, and one, I've got, let's see, I've got most of your books on my shelf right behind me. But one of the things I loved about your writing, Dr. Jones, is that it's not only a penetrating analysis uh, on all sorts of different levels that people don't talk about. It's also just fun prose to read. It's well, thank you. <laughs> enjoyable to read. So, uh, it, it's it's always good. So um, we're going to talk about. I'm going to field a, a number of questions from our guild members for you about art history in your book, beauty aesthetics, and the rest of this show will be this 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 first ten minutes will be on YouTube, and then the rest of it will be on SpiritusTV.com. And so if you want to be a part of the guild, that's MeaningOfCatholic.com/slash/register. That helps our apostolate. So I wanted to talk the the subtitle of your book is the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. So as I understand you, mimesis is the imitation of nature and concupiscence is the uh, excessive desire of the concupiscible appetite for lust. Uh, can you expand on those definitions to give us a framework for this discussion? Yes, yes. Okay, Aristotle said, Art is imitation of nature. That is exactly what it is. That is all it is ever going to be. And if it starts to be something else, it's not art. And the proof of that is the 20th century, where they got away from uh, mimesis. When you took the turn away from mimesis, it was catastrophic for the art of the 20th century in all of its branches, uh, beginning with uh, the painting, uh, going into music, and so on and so forth. So that's what uh, art imitation of nature is. So the ball begins rolling here with Giotto, who, according to Vasari, the chronicler of the painting in Italy, broke with Greek models. Greek models, I think he's referring to uh, the icon, could be also Plato, but let's just say the icon, which has a plain gold background, which symbolizes eternity because gold never changes. Giotto introduced drama into art in a way that had never happened before. So now we're going to have the, the, par the parables, the stories of the gospel illustrated in a way that had never happened. 
by by which I mean, let's say the the example of the Christ asleep in the boat, which is one of the the frescoes of uh, masterpieces that Giotto put, and they're still on the Arena Chapel. Uh, you have to go to the chapel to do this because at this time, art and religion were bonded like a fresco. You know, you, there was no such thing as buying a piece of art and taking it home, putting it up in your living room or in a museum. So now we have uh, the drama of a that actual occurrence where you have had people, the apostles, look at their faces. They're upset. They're, they're, they're afraid they're going to die which is the, the culminating moment in that parable is basically the, the point of the apostles goes to Jesus Christ, who is asleep in the boat, grabs and wakes him up and says, don't you care that we're all going to die? Well, what kind of expression would you have on your face when you're saying that? It's not going to be the placid, iconic face in eternity. This is a man in the middle of life struggles, and this becomes now a devotional aid to help us to enter into the spirit of the gospel. That's the way it began, okay? And over this time, there was an enormous progress in the ability to imitate nature that took place in Italy. Like, one, this is not something that one man can do. It's not something that one generation can do. It was multiple generations over centuries. To the point, let's uh, fast forward to, uh, to Titian, Venice, now, uh, about 300 years later, uh, and suddenly you re they're really good at it. And they're really good at one thing that all men find attractive, namely uh, imitating the female body. Uh, uh, this is intrinsically attractive because we were programmed to be attracted to the female body so that, we could, so that the human race could proceed. Now you can put it up in a painting and suddenly it can become distracting and suddenly it become uh, subject to concupiscence. Now it's hard for us to see this because, because of developments uh, farther and farther uh, in advance of that. But at that time, this was cutting the cutting edge of imitation and people, rich patrons were interested in pornography. Uh, one of them was um, the Medici, Lorenzo, and one of his favorite painters was Botticelli. Uh, we know that he threw his paintings on the bonfire of the vanities, which Savonarola organized as a reform of uh, Florence. We don't know what the paintings were. They went up in smoke. I suspect they were pornography because this is what the uh, rich aristocratic uh, patrons wanted. A man who was willing to fulfill this uh, desire uh, was a contemporary of Titian. I'm, I'm telling you, this is Titian's problem. Uh, Aretino was his friend. He was the first man to do pornography in Europe. It was woodblocks, the printing press. He wrote obscene sonnets, and you had obscene woodcuts to go along with it. So you have these two forces now, and Titian is in the middle, and he portrays the drama there. This is psychological drama. Titian is a man who understood how to compose a picture because that had been solved with Della Francesco about a century before. So I don't have to worry about that. Now I'm going to get into psychological drama. The Noli Me Tangere, which is on the cover of that book, is uh, Titian. We have the confrontation between Mary Magdalene and the risen Christ, and love uh, seeks union, and so Mary Magdalene is reaching to Christ's genitals because that would be the natural form of union between male and female. Christ puts his hand up there. When he puts his hand down like that, uh, deflecting that gesture, her eyes rise to his heart, and that is the sublimation 
that Christianity can propose of natural love into, into divine love. So that's an optimistic painting that Titian did early on. But hanging around with Aretino, he's becoming more and more pessimistic, and that comes out in the painting Venus and the Musician which is also, there's an illustration of that in, in there as well, which is basically, now here's the artist, he's now a musician. The organ is at the left-hand side of the painting. The organ is the symbol of logos, in acoustic logos, okay? This is the sound, the order of the universe is considered a musical order, uh, the music of the spheres. He's got one hand on the keyboard and one hand turning around looking at Venus and he's not looking at her face. He's looking at her crotch, okay? And this is the temptation uh, that the artist is at this point because of the power of mimesis to arouse concupiscence, and it also indicates the crisis that art is going through at that very moment in history because this is the very moment where, on the one hand, you have Aretino heading into pornography, and on the other hand, you have the Germanic tribes my barbarian ancestors, uh, who were heading in the other direction, namely uh, iconoclasm. That's the crisis at this moment in history. Uh, it's resolved by the Council of Trent, which says, yes, there's a danger. No, we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the crucial uh, battleground for that was the Sistine Chapel. Which, so well, that brings ahead. up a, 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 the first question I want to I want to field here from uh, Julia, who who says, "What is the distinction between Catholic art and other art?" There, I'm tempted to say there is no distinction. Hmm. If if by Catholic art you mean art made by Catholics. Uh, based on certain biblical themes or themes in the gospel, okay, if you want to call that Catholic art, I, I can understand that. But uh, when you're talking about beauty, uh, in, in many ways, that's, that's, that's an irrelevant uh, distinction because beauty, the beauty of the thing does not have to do with the theme. That's the inspiration for it. The beauty has to come to the balance between uh, existence and essence. And that's the definition of beauty. Unity in multiety is how Samuel Taylor Coleridge said it in that third section of the book where I go into English poetry. In other words, what do, what do you experience when you experience beauty? I, I've had experiences of beauty, uh, significant experiences in my life, significant aesthetic experiences. One of them is the, uh, the portrait of Princess Spinola Doria, by Rubens, which is the culmination of the uh, Council of Trent. Rubens got rich restoring churches that had been burned down by the iconoclasts in the Spanish Netherlands. And this is a portrait he did as a young lady. I saw the actual portrait. I went to the uh, museum in Toledo, Ohio. It's about five hours away. Got there, had to wait five hours to get in, and then walked in. This is the first thing you see. And what you see there is something that is really, this is a real person. That's the first thing you say. And then you think, boy, this is really well organized. This is, this is the, it's the actual essence, the actual existence of the person, and it's the actual essence of a deeper unity here. That's, that's art. And if, that, if you want to call that Catholic art, I can make that argument as well. Okay. 
Now, uh, what is what is your perspective on pre-Renaissance art? You commented on um, the lack of mimesis, perhaps. Um, I'm thinking also of um, we have the Feast of the Sacred Heart tomorrow, and we have devotional images of the Sacred Heart, which show an actual heart, which is then spiritualized and whatnot. But it seems that the icons and iconography of Sacred Heart before the Renaissance is it's kind of it seems like it's is it a mimesis of a spiritual reality a spiritual nature a supernature what do you what do you view the pre-renaissance yeah, art? I, yeah pre-renaissance art i begin with the caves in spain 30,000 years ago this this is in some sense spiritual this is why i begin with a discussion in of chesterton in the everlasting man uh, when he tried to counter what H.G. Wells said about cavemen, you know, the sex lives of cavemen. He said, the only thing we know about the caveman is that he was an artist, which means he was a rational creature. A, the, uh, he could imitate nature. So all, if it's imitation of nature, it's mimesis. And it's, it's, that's, uh, it's like, that's the bottom, bottom line. That, that's what it was from the beginning, from the absolute beginning of mankind, it was always be, uh, imitation of nature because man is a rational creature. He didn't become a rational creature. He was created a rational creature from the beginning. And the first thing he did was talk, which is the only a rational creature can do. And then after that, he started imitating nature. So that's always going to, it's always going to be imitation. I'm not trying to denigrate anything that happened before the Renaissance. I'm just saying that there was a development in mimesis in other words this looks more real than that yeah that's all i'm saying yeah I, I can see that and there's a whole obviously there's a whole christian theological controversy about sacred art um but i want to go back to you mentioned the rise of pornography um so the council of trent is addressing this situation um but it, it seems that the, the church does bless certain depictions of nudity that are not pornographic. Um, how are we to understand those? Those have always confused me. This is also a question from uh, Scott. Uh, what does Dr. Jones think of nudity in so-called Renaissance sculpture and painting? Is there a non-pornographic version of that? Absolutely. Absolutely. This was this was the crisis. The key man is Cardinal Borromeo. Um, the cut the cousin of the famous Carlo Borromeo, yeah, who was the yeah. man who right. ran ran the uh, the Council of Trent, uh, and he and and the, the the crucial debate is as I mentioned was the Sistine Chapel, so Carlo Borromeo or not Carlo the other one Federico Borromeo enters into the discussion and says uh, there's nothing intrinsically wrong about nudity and he gave me as an example I I think it was Titian. A portrait of Mary Magdalene, okay, bare-breasted Mary Magdalene, okay. It could have been in Playboy magazine, okay, but uh, he says it's a, a suitable for devotion because she, her eyes are all red from tears. So the the bare breast give you some indication of what her former profession was, but she's sorry. The sorrow for her sin is also apparent in that, and that's suitable for private devotion. Now that's the crucial turning point, I think, or the crucial distinction that he would make because he was against the nudity in the Sistine Chapel. He didn't feel it was appropriate be, uh, in a, a place where the Eucharist was being celebrated. He felt that it was a distraction. There were lots of cardinals who felt the, the same way. Uh, and it wasn't necessary. 
but the nudity, the nudity there is hardly uh, uh, stimulating uh, uh, lustful thoughts. Isn't this the in my, in my isn't like pulling naked men across the river sticks or something? Yeah, right. this, so this is the classic example, that, and this is what Borromeo brought up. He said, uh, so who is that saint there with the oar in his hand whacking those guys over? Well, it's not a saint. It's Charon, who's the, the furry man who takes the dead across the river Styx. So the first question in his mind is, why are, why are we dealing with Rome, uh, Greek legends here? Why are we dragging this into the celebration of the Mass? It's not appropriate. The nudity is not appropriate either. It's not stimulating. It's not erotic. It's just distracting. We're distracting uh, all of litur all of liturgical art has to be focused on the Eucharist as the final goal here. It's like you walk into the Sistine, uh, uh, St. Peter's Basilica, that all of that multiplicity is focused on that one window, all the way at the end of the Holy Spirit. It's just an amazing way of unifying that thing, which you don't find in, in mosques. I've been in many mosques in Iran, and they're beautiful. They have beautiful blue tiles, but for the most part, they are not focused. There's no unity in, in those buildings. Uh, so that was the discussion. Basically, nudity uh, is, is okay uh, because the human body is okay, but you have to make sure it's put in an appropriate setting and it can't be used as an incitement to lust, which is exactly what uh, Aretino was doing in his book. So the, I, I don't remember you, I remember your, I don't remember your quotes on the Council of Trent addressing the particular controversy of nudity, but it seems, so it seems that the church allowed and blessed a depiction of nudity, which is, uh, showing the beauty of the human body that's reverent, that is not an incitement to lust, where uh, there were other presentations of nudity that did that. So it's it's some sort of presentation of nudity which incites one to marvel at the beauty. Right. 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 But for, first of all, the statement in the document uh, documents of the Council of Trent is very dis it's a disappointing statement, because basically what Borromeo said is, look, this, these are culturally relative uh, conditions that we have to take into account. So you can't really ca the bishop is going to have to decide what is appropriate. The local bishop, so he punted it to the local bishop, with a, some understanding that basically German sensibilities and Italian sensibilities are very different when it comes to this this issue. And you can't have one global pronouncement uh, because uh, the, the cultures are different. Modesty is, is cultural. I, I, I hate to be a cultural relativist when it comes yeah. to this, but it is. Modesty is culturally relative. So uh, an example I got from another, another book I wrote was the biography of uh, Julius Nerera, the first president of Tanzania. He, uh, his father had 17 wives. And he posed in a picture with that uh, one of his first wife, uh, who was also Nereri's mother, and he's there with a dressed like an English gentleman. He's got a top hat and frock coat, and his wife is standing next to him, bare-breasted. Now, at this point, it was in Africa. It was not immodest to walk around with your breast exposed. Now, that's a cultural relativist angle, but then there's something else involved here, too, is that you go to Africa now, no woman walks around with her breast exposed. So what happened is that Christianity arrived largely from 
uh, Irish nuns like uh, Mother Kevin from, uh, who arrived in, I think, in the 1920s in, in Kenya, Uganda, uh, Kenya or Uganda. And uh, they started schools, Catholic schools, and when the girls came to school, they gave them dresses. And as soon as those girls started wearing dresses, the other girls became self-conscious, and soon, pretty soon, everybody was wearing a dress. Something similar happened to Gauguin. Gauguin went to the South Sea Islands to French Tahiti because he wanted to escape from Christian civilization. He picks up one of these girls. Uh, he's, that's her, his girlfriend. Uh, uh, they're living together. So it's paradise, right? Except that the girl looks out the window and she watches all the Tahitians going to church and she turns to Gauguin and says, I'd like to have a white dress. <laughs> the whole thing blew, the whole noble savage thing just blew up in his face right there. So I'm trying to say, you have to formulate all of these uh, principles in light of actual cultural conditions. Ah, that's one thing, but also the progress in understanding the human body that takes place over a period of time. I'd like to shift to music. Uh, you have a, your second chapter is called Music in Germany. Um, and my friend Timus Miris over at uh, Catholic Culture made a comment to me once, and I wonder if you would agree or disagree or elaborate on it, in that um, one of the uh, good things about modernity, there's Protestant revolt and all the everything's sort of shattering in Europe, but somehow they managed to develop music. There's sort of this project, this trajectory of music that continues to develop and increase in complexity all the way through Beethoven um, and into the 19th century. Uh, would you say that there is this sort of projection with music that doesn't really follow the disintegration at least into the 19th century what are your thoughts on that i think uh so i guess you're talking about bach let's cut to the chase here nah, sure okay how could a protestant like bach produce such great music uh, and then you're confronted with a further anomaly uh, what's the last thing bach wrote he wrote a mass so if you not, if you, I go into Bach's life. I think Bach was a saint. I don't care whether he was a Lutheran or not. I think he was a saint, and I think his final vision, of reward being rewarded for a saintly life, was a vision of heaven, which he then put into the mass. So when you're talking about Bach, you're talking about someone who is so far above the realm of normal human life that it's hard to comprehend. Okay, but on the other hand, you're talking about, if you're talking about Bach as the peak of Mount Everest in terms of music, there's all that mountain underneath it, and that is German music, German folk music, German liturgical music, German organ music in particular, that provided the foundation upon which Bach could build that great, uh, that great uh, edifice. So he's absolutely crucial. He's absolutely crucial to my story because uh, when he did the uh, well-tempered clavier, he solved the problem of the circle of fifths, which according to natural tuning, gets out of control by the time you get halfway through it and you can't harmonize these things because, so he had to have a, a different tuning and that tuning allowed uh, you to basically transpose, to modulate and move from one key to another seamlessly. When you change keys, in a piece of music, um, 
you give it new life. I, 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 are you familiar with that great Dean Martin song, At Samore? When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza oh, pie? Yeah, sure. At Samore, okay. It's, uh, it's not a great piece of music. I like it, but it's not a great piece of music. But it gets given new life because he changes key in the middle of it. Uh, 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 this is changing key uh, is like, in terms of, very important in terms of mimesis because it's like being outside and suddenly the sun comes out from behind a cloud. Do you realize that the mood, how your mood changes when something is like that? This is what happens when you change key in a piece of music. You can go from a minor key to a major key and suddenly there's drama. Uh, this is precisely what Beethoven mastered. And he mastered it by playing Bach's well-tempered clavier. His father used to beat him. Father knew he was a genius. He wanted Beethoven to be the second Mozart so he could make a lot of money off him. And he used to beat him to make sure he practiced. But the fruit of that was he mastered that idea of modulation from moving one key to the other. And he, a huge, he created a huge breakthrough in terms of mimesis when it comes to music. I mean, the first, let's say the first three symphonies, first two symphonies are standard Austrian type of stuff that Haydn could have produced. Haydn produced about a hundred of them. Mozart was also producing his line. And then with the third symphony, something new happened. There was suddenly uh, a sense that he was addressing the world that they lived in. And the main issue in the world that they lived in was Napoleon. And the third symphony is about Napoleon. Are you talking about Beethoven? Beethoven, yes. Yes. Um, so do you see Beethoven as progressing further than Bach in terms of developing music, musical mimesis? <laughs> yes and no. I mean, nobody can go farther than Bach. He was an absolute genius, okay? But uh, as we move along in history, you can build on what he discovered and he did beethoven did come up with a huge breakthrough in terms of musical mimesis the third symphony is about beethoven the fifth symphony is about overcoming adversity the sixth symphony is about taking a walk in the woods outside of vienna i it, no one had ever heard this type of stuff before no one could e had, ever, had ever had their attention focused on the real world in the way music Beethoven had done it. And the result was he created a whole new forum, namely the concert. Before that, I mean the concert for the public. <laughs> Before that, this had already been pioneered in Italy with opera. Okay, but now to have something like a, a piece of music, no words whatsoever, and yet you're drawn up into the drama. I'm, I understand what's going on. That meant that the public could come there, and that created the concert hall as we know it today. Before that, you had to go either to the court, the king's court, the court of the emperor, or to church to hear music, or to the pub and hear folk music. Now, you, you speak about Wagner. This is one of the topics that you discuss. I think it's in Di yeah, Dionysus Rising too. Um, now, does Wagner, he, he talks about legitimizing adultery, and he also has this uh, chromaticism. Is he the beginning of the decline, or does it? do you view it as starting more with Schoenberg? No, he's the beginning. Schoenberg is simply a pale reflection of Wagner. 
And what did Wagner do? What did, so what did Beethoven do? Uh, B Bishop Williamson gave a speech once about the Fifth Symphony. He accompanied it on the piano, and it's basically, it, it, it's things are always threatening to get out of control. In Beethoven, you, uh, it's passion. That's what music is about. It's movements of the soul. They're passions of the soul. And they're always threatening to get out of control. And that's where the drama comes in. Can we bring them under control? Well, Beethoven always brings them under control because he always go back, goes back to where he started. And that, you get the sense of relief. You get the sense, I've been through something. I've been, I'm a better person because I've been through something. Well, Aristotle called it catharsis. It was a medical term. You feel better. Music can help heal your soul. I've, I've, I've compared it like I row on the St. Joe River. Uh, and I've, there have been times I've rowed three miles up to Mishawaka, and I've been up there, and suddenly a storm will roll in. And I'm in the middle of the river with two big oars that were, are like great electrical conductors, and there's thunder and lightning, and I'm thinking... I'm going to die. And then uh, the storm passes, and I end up back on the same dock I started from, and I feel relieved. That's exactly the Sixth Symphony. It's literally the Sixth except Beethoven's not rowing. He's, <laughs> there's a thunderstorm. <laughs> there's a, literally a thunderstorm. No one had ever heard a thunderstorm like that before. They had never achieved that type of amesis. This is... Uh, Vivaldi has a piece called Il Tempesto del de Mare, which is the storm at sea, and it's him playing really fast, okay? But there's no thunderstorm. It just does it lacks that level of mimesis. When you're listening to the Sixth Symphony, you know the thunderstorm just rolled in and interrupted the peasant's dance. You know it. How do you know that? You can't see a damn thing. All you can do is hear, but you know it. That shows you what a, a powerful piece of mimesis uh, Beethoven had created. So with Wagner, there's the catharsis, or not the catharsis, there's the unleashing of passion without the resolution. No, that's, that, that's okay, yes and no. Okay, if you're talking about Tannhäuser, the answer is no. There is a resolution in Tannhäuser. Uh, Tannhäuser is about, it's about sexual liberation. And you have the, the Christian, the Pilgrim's Chorus, which is a strong diatonic piece of music with no chromatic fiddling around with it. It's strong. It's the Pilgrim's marching toward Rome. But on his way to Rome, Wagner uh, stopped off at the Venusberg, which is the realm of sensual delight. Okay? And at that point, it becomes chromatic, especially in the Paris version that he wrote. So now you that, that's plot where the emotion is subordinated to the plot, okay? And now you have uh, the plot is subordinated to the emotion. And Ra Wagner stops, the pilgrim stops. Should I stay here in the realm of sensual delight or is there a higher Christian calling? And eventually he hears that pilgrim chorus again. Ba, 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 ba. Ba, 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 strong. I, 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 that was one of those moments where first time I heard it, I was struck, transfixed, listening to the power. And he hears that, and it draws him out of the Venusberg, and he ends up going to, to Rome. So beauty is a transcendental. It, there's, there, obviously, we are uh, uh, creatures with bodies, sexual creatures. The per, there's a, a purpose to the sexuality, but you have to have rational control over it, and that's precisely what happens in Tannhäuser. 
unfortunately, it doesn't happen in Tristan. And that's the problem with Tristan and Isolde, which is the beginning of sexual liberation uh, in Germany, certainly, and probably in Europe as well. Because the modulation keeps going on, but if I can use the analogy of me rowing, the ship sails off and it never returns to the dock because the modulation goes on and on, and you never return to that tonal center that you did, uh, that you had in, uh, let's say, Tannhäuser. So it's just an, a, a release of emotions which never gets resolved. No, it's not resolved. You arouse the passions, you arouse the emotions, and that's where you want to stay. It's like extended uh, sexual intercourse going on forever. Well, that doesn't work. That's not going to work. But that is another word for lust, uh, another word for pornography, uh, where you disconnect from the natural rhythm of sexuality, which returns to the dock. Uh, uh, of of reason, and this time it's maybe maybe it's limitless possibility. Maybe you can screw every woman in the Venusberg, and this is the type of thought that it unleashed in Germany at this period of time. And the main uh, example of that is Thomas Mann, who went to every single performance of uh, Tristan that he could go to, and the result was death in Venice. One of the greatest pieces of German literature. I mean, the prose is just absolutely stunning. Uh, uh, but it's about his infatuation with a Polish teenager, his homosexual infatuation. So is it willing to risk death? Well, he says, yeah. So he stays around in Venice, and the plague comes, and he dies. Like Foucault. <laughs> he died doing what he loved. So that brings up uh, two questions from Brett and Scott. Uh, which is, you kind of touched on this, but um, Brett says, what does Dr. Jones think about romantic era art and music? This era seems to have been a big step in moving art and music towards becoming more of an emotional ecstasy. And Scott says this, uh, at least from the romantics on, there is a big push of subjectivism, nominalism, and universalism. Blake and Wordsworth seem to embody these. Many Protestants think of Blake as a Christian poet, but I now find him particularly blasphemous and anti-Christian. So I guess the question is, where does that rom where does the romantic era beethoven is considered romantic where does the romantic okay. era go okay. ahead okay okay one of the 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 mo the most liberating moments in my intellectual journey was dumping the word romanticism just taking it and kicking it out throwing it in the trash can okay uh, and i did it particularly uh, first of all in regards to english poetry so to say that wordsworth and shelley were bar part of the same movement uh, is preposterous, okay? They, they were Englishmen who lived around the same time. Uh, Shelley died young. Wordsworth, uh, let, let's, let's be more precise. Let's talk about, which is what I do in the book, let's talk about the year 1770. That's the year in which Wordsworth, uh, Hegel, and Beethoven were born. The fundamental fact of their lives was the French Revolution, which occurred when they were impressionable 19-year-olds. Hegel finished uh, the phenomenology uh, with the sound of Napoleon's cannon in, his, in the background, the preface, he finished that. Okay, Wordsworth was swept up with the spirit of revolution, went over to France, uh, had an affair because everybody was, that was a sexual revolution. 
uh, f fell in love with Annette Villon, had an affair, and they had a child by her, and then suddenly English is where he has to go back. Okay, Shelley is a whole generation after that. Uh, Shelley uh, is a very impressionable teenager. Uh, by this time, Wordsworth has turned against the French Revolution, and Shelley is just trying to reignite it, goes to meet with William Godwin, uh, writes Queen Mab, which is a, 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 he's a genius. Poets are born, they're not made, and Shelley was born a poet, obviously, but he was also a teenager infatuated with the resurrecting the French Revolution. Uh, and so the Queen Mab is nothing but a pee into all of these revolutionary ideas, like even vegetarianism, uh, free love, vegetarianism, all that type of stuff that you still see on university campuses now. Uh, to say that they both romantic is meaningless. It's meaningless. And so I gave, I, I just got rid of that term. If you look at it from the terms of uh, mimesis, I think, uh, you'll come up with a clearer understanding of what was going on and how things were progressing at that time. Okay, so throw romanticism as a term into the trash. Right. Um, mimesis. So you, you've touched on Wagner. Uh, Wagner is the beginning of anti-mimesis in music. Um, now, uh. where does modern art... Is you mentioned at the end of chapter three, it's the um, the what was it impressionism, Manet and Ma uh, where where the uh, pornography begins to get mass produced. Uh, where does the where does modern art really get born? Is it it's later nineteenth century? Okay, you could talk about in two different ways. The 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 crisis in uh, art. Uh, occurred in the mid-19th century with the invention of the camera. Now, suddenly you have a machine. Can a machine imitate nature? No, the answer is no, because you need a human mind to understand nature in order to imitate it. But it looks as if it can. And so the result was uh, the French, it was invented in France by a man by the name of Degur around 1850-something like that. And at that point, uh, the art goes into a subjectivist phase which we would call uh, French Impressionism. So uh, can the camera reproduce the, uh, what we see? Uh, no, not as well as the mind can, and the mind is reproducing it as a unity of subject and, and object, <clears throat> which is exactly what Hawthorne, uh, not Hawthorne, what Wordsworth said it was in that poem, Daffodils. That was the great, uh, understanding. Coleridge brokered it because he and Wordsworth went over and they understood to study German idealism. Wordsworth just was a total provincial like Hawthorne, just holed up in his room with his sister and wrote poems about how homesick he was. Whereas Coleridge went out and met the people, taught, tried to speak German, spoke an abominable German according to reports, but these made the effort. It was like an Englishman. An Englishman speaking German is like a, a, a monkey riding a motorcycle. It's not that they're great at it. It's just astounding that they can do it at all. So he came up with the German, the, the, the resolution that Beethoven had already talked about. So you have this confrontation, there's trouble. 
how are you going to react to it? You're going to resist it. So the spirit is now going to resist this outer world. And then you have the Hegelian synthesis. It's a synthesis that Fichte came up with, which is basically the, the resolution of the objective into sub, and the subjective into something that is both real and meaningful. For often on my couch I lie in vacant or a pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. That's the synthesis that takes place there. That's yeah. the synthesis that they tried to do in, in art uh, in, uh, in uh, France at that point, but it headed toward the subjective. So how do we, uh, let me, I'm going to kind of fast forward through a lot more in your book, which is modernity, basically, but we've kind of touched on the essence of modernity, if we can call it an essence, just this um, unlimited, unlimited concupiscence um, in art, no mimesis. Um, how do we participate in logos rising in our day? How do we, how do we rebuild beauty in, in, in a, pornographic society such as this mimesis <laughs> it's got to be mimesis so i was I, I was a teacher in germany for three years went to a church in uh, emmerich which is near where i lived and they had abstract expressionist stations of the cross Comple a completely stupid appropriation <laughs> of a dance craze that was created by the cia in the in the 50s obviously uh, uh, stations of the cross have to be representational obviously <laughs> how can you know whether it's uh, you know saint veronica or whether he's being nailed to the cross if it's abstract this is classic german thinking at this time this is mid 70s uh, the the uh, the germans were good at internalizing the commands of their oppressors uh, my friend, the guy I was in the band with, uh, I was in a band in Germany with a guy named Heiner Frost, a guy, a guy who had a great amount of musical talent, unlike me. And he went to the Robert Schumann Institute, and the first thing they, uh, in Dusseldorf, music, study music and composition, first thing they taught him was 12-tone music, which is another CIA operation, which has nothing to do with mimesis. There is nothing mimetic at all about 12-tone music. It's an abomination. It's psychological warfare. So if we're talking about reform, you have to get back to reality. You have to get back to nature, and you have to start imitating nature again and get rid of all of these ideological fads that came about because... Vatican II said the church has nothing to fear from the modern world. If there were ever famous last words, that, that, that was it. It's, come, it's right next to, there are no Indians over the, that hill, General Custer. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you give us uh, some names of good artists who are doing mimesis who are alive today, whether that visual arts or in music? Yeah. Now, what's the Ital the Italians are, have never lost it, okay? And what is the guy's name? The famous guy from Florence, and his name is escaping me right now. Um, who did the portrait of the Queen of England? It's in the it's in that uh, toward the end of the book. Oh, okay. Uh, what I, I'm drawing a complete blank. The, the Italians never lost it. That's that's the, wonderful. The Italians never lost God bless it. Them. Not in music, 
Certainly not because opera was always mimetic. Uh, they never succumbed to the Wagnerian type of temptation. But they don't have ugly churches in Italy? Yeah, of course they do. Every world, every oh. place has ugly churches. But if you were talking about portraiture, uh, the man who... Uh, <laughs> okay, 1947. This is the high watermark of uh, abstract expressionism, Congress of Cultural Freedom, the CIA is involved promoting Jackson Pollock, Jack the Dripper, and this man, uh, whose name I can't remember, holds a, uh, a show in Florence and nobody shows up. And at that point, he writes a manifesto about representational art. And eventually, he is proven right. He becomes the, uh, he did this portrait of Queen Elizabeth, which is one of the greatest, I'd say the greatest portrait of the 20th century. And uh, at that point, all of the uh, English aristocracy decided that they want their portraits done, and so he, he was able to make enough money. He had did, did several portraits uh, for the cover of Time magazine. One of my early patrons, uh, uh, Chauncey Stillman of Happy Memory, uh, would invite me to his estate in the Catskills, which is now open to the public, and uh, Anagoni, Pietro Anagoni. Okay, the word, the name finally came to me. Pietro, Pietro Anagoni. Yeah, Pietro Anagoni is the classic example of what I'm talking about. How about the uh, the Italians never lost their connection with Mimesis? He had his uh, the fireplace. He did uh, the Gloriette there. Uh, did the entire room, and then on the fireplace in the main room, Chauncey's two daughters were uh, two portraits by Anagoni. That is the proof. It goes all the way up to Gasparo, who just did a portrait of Saint Simon of Trent, which antagonized the Jews. Uh, but that tradition has never died out in Italy. Uh, is this the? Uh, let me let me see if this is the one you're referring to. Is this is this the portrait? Yes, that's it. Okay, that's it. That's oh, Queen I, I, Elizabeth. Okay, Ab absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. And this is a pale uh, reproduction. It's a reproduction of a reproduction of a reproduction. Uh, but the, uh, the beauty, the delicacy, it just comes out as being faded here, but the delicacy of the color that had taken the Florentine centuries to develop uh, is apparent in that. If Get yourself a good uh, reproduction and you'll see what I'm talking about here. Okay. This this is one of the I think it's the greatest portrait of the 20th century. God God save the queen. Uh, just the the ca it, ca capturing the soul of Queen Elizabeth at this moment in her life where she's basically dragged in to be the uh, preside over the decline of the British Empire, the collapse of the British Empire as a teenager, uh, and as, as head of the uh, Church of England, where she did a terrible job, was way out of her depth. I mean, just look at the expression on her face, you know, and you can see the kind of, what should I say, the dignity, the tragedy, all of that right there in that face, and Anagoni captured it. Beautiful. Wow. Well, wonderful. Dr. Jones, thanks so much for uh, talking to me today. Uh, once again, you can pick up Dangers of Beauty at uh, Fidelity Press. and uh, go, go to culturewars.com, the only place you can get it, or 
fidelitypress.org. Those okay. two are where you can get the book. Fidelitypress.org. Yes, uh, Dr. Jones is uh, available on fidelitypress.org. Uh, all his books and a few other texts. So when would when what's the uh, ETA for the Hawthorne text? Well, um, I got other books in the hopper before. Uh, of course you got. <laughs> <laughs> but if, but if you read, if you go to uh, an excerpt, will be published in the September issue of Culture Wars. So if you subscribe now. Uh, no, I'm sorry. No, no. The, in the July-August issue of Culture Wars, you, that's the next issue. You will get to read this story oh, about, about Nathaniel Hawthorne. The question is, Rose Hawthorne not only converted to Catholicism after her father's death, she became a Dominican nun. She founded an order of Dominican nuns, to, who, which to this day cares for people with incurable cancer in Hawthorne, New York, which was named after her. Take that and put that in your hopper next to the fact that Hawthorne, even though God brought him to the confessional, couldn't go inside. And I try to make sense of that uh, in this article, which will be in the July-August issue of Culture Wars. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, reading your text that kind of brings together your your whole into intellectual journey, uh, Dr. John. It sounds fascinating. So let's uh, end, as always, with a Hail Mary uh, this is the icon that we've been promoting. This is the Russian icon of Fatima. And so this is a Russian style icon, but it's a, a Fatima icon. Um, and on Saturday, we will celebrate the, the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And so let's let's offer all of these considerations on beauty to Our Lady, who is beauty. In the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus is King.